This is Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams. I'm your host, Matt Purdue. Welcome back, guys. This is the Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams podcast, where we discuss all things change. This episode is going to deal with meaning, purpose, how it fits into Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams, or our lives, or the change process. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't publish a, an episode on Thursday because I intended to do this one, but it got so cumbersome and complicated that I couldn't even finish it. And then I tried to record it on Friday, and it just then it got really long. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a two-part series on meaning. And fair enough, meaning is one of the, the deepest the parts of our lives. And if you're new to Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams, then... Let me just explain that anchors, freaks, and dreams is are they're just symbols of different strata, layers of our life, where there's the anchors, they're the, it's the more superficial things that we can get a hold of, that we can see the nuts and the bolts, the X's and the O's of our life, and then there's the the freaks, and that's the things that makes us feel special and. Why? Uh, what is, what does our goal represent? What's the feeling? That's deeper, and it's it's sometimes it's visceral. The meaning that it comes from our very core, and it's in, it's intense. That's the big one. And then there's the dreams, and that's the kind of the big picture, the meta narrative, if you will, and the identity, the the deep parts of us that sometimes are unexplainable, the subconscious or the unconscious, why we do what we do. Um, are things nurture or nature? It's hard to tell sometimes when we get into the dreams. But meaning is going to fit squarely into dreams. And let me explain the difference uh, between, say, a, a reward feeling and a meaning feeling. Like a reward feel, feeling is something that makes you feel special. The freaks. That was freaky, man. That was awesome. Like, that's your special. And by their nature, these rewards, they're really not replicatable. Whereas when we're talking about meaning, they're infinitely replicatable. They're just not as intense. A, a, a goal with a special meaning that's freaky, that will narrow my focus and cause me to um, create, it, it'll, it'll cause me and pull me towards action. And if there's an intense, it's almost a euphoric or happy or pleasurable or joyful feeling that comes from attainment of the goal. And if I feel like I'm on path, then it will sustain me through the process. Whereas the meaning, the purpose, if I'm attaching it appropriately, then I don't get that intense feeling, but I do get a deep sense of satisfaction or contentment. And, but it, it, could, it can be that way forever. Whereas if you get a reward, it kind of goes away. But if you get attach something to meaning, it never goes away. As long as it's meaningful, it never goes away. Now, 
an example would be like the first time in my life where I ever were had there was a reward that I was working towards that was powerful was pulling me towards it was third grade. Now I mentioned before, like in ninth grade, I I went from basketball to wrestling in one moment, and I had such a a freaky experience. But again, that experience was not replicatable, and that's why I remember it so clearly. And that's why it was so powerful. And that's the other reason why people who start with like hard drugs when they're young, um, they're not in a good way. They, the, the statistics are not good because they, 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 they rewire their brain with a chemical. And it's supposed to be an experience that's supposed to set your life up and give you direction. It was intense for a reason. But, I, but that's a whole different subject. I, I want to talk about, like, the first time I remember saying that's something that I really, really want and I want to work hard for it. Third grade, we had this thing called Super Kids. And Super Kids was if during a nine-week quarter, because we got our report cards every nine weeks, if you didn't get in trouble that whole nine weeks, then you, be, you got to be a Super Kid. And a Super Kid... You got a whole day off of work. You had to come to school, but you got the whole day off of work. And you had to play games and do all kinds of things. Got much movies. But this is why it was so crucial or important or awesome. Because I came from second grade. I missed John, God bless her. But there were three different classes in our class, there were like 35 kids. There, there were kindergartners, there were first graders, and second graders. And by the time I got to second graders, they had split us up somehow. And there were only like six or seven second graders in the whole class. And so it was really difficult for the teacher to try and isolate us and have us behave much differently than a bunch of five-year-olds running around. So we just ran amok, basically. And then when I came into third grade, suddenly... All the first graders and second graders and you know, all, all the kindergartners, they're all gone. And we even had fourth graders in there. So I'm going from sharing a class with five-year-olds to sharing a class with I don't know, maybe some 10-year-olds. But here was the big thing. This was the, this was the main issue is that we had, uh, I think Mrs. Tate was supposed to be our teacher. And she had been there for years and everybody loved her. And, you know, I was, I think my sister even had her. But then she was taking a time off for some reason, like a sabbatical of some sort. But it was only supposed to be short. And so it was, but it was a last minute thing too. And so they, they the school was desperately trying to get a teacher. And they came up with Miss McGraw. And Miss McGraw, again, bless her, she had never taught in her life. But I think back in the day when she was in school, she got her degree and her credential. Like, I don't know if it was up to date, honestly. But the thing was, is that she'd never actually had any experience teaching. And she was not young. She was like in her 50s, maybe 60s. But, I, you know, at this point, I don't really recall. And so when she came in, she was only supposed to be there a few weeks, maybe a couple months. But she ended up teaching the whole year. And Miss Laws was this, the assistant teacher. And this girl had been around the block. She was long in a tooth. Like, she was a silver top. And I think what happened was Miss Grawl walked through the door and she goes, this won't do. She's got no experience. I'm just going to have to take over. 
I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to guide her. And I really think that this was like Miss Laws her one opportunity to be a teacher. She had been an, a substitute teacher her whole life, and she was like pushing retirement age, and this was her opportunity. And so I we just got this really strict rules. It was I mean when I say she was old school. This is like Little House on the Prairie, church building slash school building slash wooden desk slash teacher walks around with a ruler and pops you in the side of the neck or your wrist if you if you speak. And we had this elaborate system of um, penalties. And everybody had their name on this board. And then there was a little like manila envelope, half envelope, like a pocket, uh, like a pouch. A little kangaroo pouch below it, and and then at the very bottom there was one pouch. It was full of these little black marks, and the black marks were like black construction paper cut into strips, like I don't know, one by four maybe. And if you got in trouble, then you had to go up and put a black mark in in your pouch. But here's the deal: like I went from running amok to suddenly the rule was you had to sit at your desk all day long and you couldn't talk. You couldn't even talk. You had to keep your mouth shut the whole time. And, I mean, you know, I don't like to complain, but I was clinically ADHD, and this is from the, this came from the 70s. If I had red dyed number five, then I, I went into the stratosphere. And um, as I would, I would just, I would act crazy and my eyes would twitch around. It was, it was, it was interesting. It's not like this day and age, come on, man, they, get, they give Ritalin and Adderall to anybody. <laughs> You come off the street and you're like, man, I can't focus. Script. This was all old school. Real ADHD. And so it was just difficult for me to pay attention. And I remember I saw like later, I was looking back through the little book, you know, that you keep of all your little childhood experiences. And I found the report card from third grade and written in there, Miss McGraw had written, Matt looks out the window, stares out the window a lot. Yeah, I remember staring out the window as much as possible. So, back to the point, super kid. So, this is a big deal. I wouldn't average one to two, maybe three black marks a week. And if you had got, I think, four or five, then you got detention or you had to take a note home to your parents. I don't know if that ever happened. It probably did. But I've realized that after the first couple times that this super kid was a big deal. And I was jealous of these other kids that were, were getting super kid. And I think that that third uh, quarter, I went like two weeks and I didn't get a black mark the whole time. And I realized after those two weeks, like, wait a minute, I might be able to pull this one off. And so I, this is again, this is the example. This is my goal, my reward. This was freaky, super kid, man, that's freaky. And I started trying. And so I was intentionally not just trying to whisper when the teacher wasn't looking, but I was trying not to do anything. And, I, you know, my friends would be like, Psst, you know, and I would be like, I wouldn't anyone look up because I thought if I look up to see what they say to me, the teacher's going to think that I'm talking, even though I wasn't. And I don't want to risk it. So I would just look down and shake my head like, no, you're going to have to talk to me later. And so I dug in and put all the effort that I could into it in week three, week four, week five, week six, week seven. It's week eight, and you know what's coming. My, 
my table at lunch gets in trouble for some shenanigan. And they, the teachers, Miss Laws is all mad at us. You, da 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 da, next to the door, go up and put a black mark in. You even, even the other teachers at the table were saying how loud you were. <laughs> we were in embarrassment. And, oh, man, my my heart sank. And I was walking up there, and I started to cry. And I, Miss Laws looked up and saw me, and I think she realized that I had gone this whole quarter without getting a black mark, and I just blew it. And she grabs me, pulls me down, and hugs me, and says, don't put a black mark in there. I know how hard you've tried. And to this day, I'm grateful to Miss Laws. And I think the next week that I got busted for something again, and Miss McGraw let me off. So, you know, props to both of them if they're living. They made, they made me a super kid, even though it wasn't legitimate. And, okay, so the super kid, we got off, but we got to, like, play games when we were off. Like, I was over there playing Clue while everybody else was doing grammar. And, of course, me and Michael Hamby, we were, like, whispering really loud, like, Colonel Mustard with the lead pipe. And then, you know, they were all the fourth graders like, shh. <laughs> oh, man, that was the best ever. And then, you know, I go over to the table with the tape player and the little workbook. So you learn about the culture of India. You know, how sharks don't have to keep swimming all the time. Or the dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. Something like that. I love those the animal books or tapes. Then it got ramped up. We got to go watch a movie in the library. And there were probably like five or six or seven of us super kids that made it. And, uh, you know, it was on one of the, the only TV in the school. It was sitting on some little rolling two-rack system. And the, the big 27-inch tube TV that had to be strapped down with a nylon strap and a winch. Uh, just so it wouldn't fall off and kill some kid. And then in the middle tier, there was a VCR. And we're talking like 2001 Space Odyssey style where the, the cartridge would come up out of the top and you put the VHS in and press it down. I mean, this is, you know, they probably bought that thing. This was, I think, like 83 maybe. But they probably bought it in the late 70s. So it was like one of the first VCRs. Anyway, we got to watch like probably Fraggle Rock. Or if we were lucky, The Man from Snowy River. And then we got to go to the gym. It was open playtime. And I was excited about this, man. Because I was I had some energy to burn off. Well, then I got in there and I realized, oh, this isn't quite as great as it I thought. Because it's not the whole class in there. And, you know, for lack of a better word, the other super kids aren't the sporty kind. You know what I'm saying? Like, the they wear a denim jacket all day long. When we play dodgeball, they would all mass together in the back corner just hoping not to get hit. And if somebody decided to have a little fun, they would wing, you know, a ball into the whole group. And they would split apart like a school of sardines with a swordfish coming through. They just, you know, they never tried to catch the ball. They never tried to throw the ball. It was just, you know, like, so I wasn't going to get a quality pickup game, if you know what I'm saying. So that was, that was a little boring to me. But the, the, the ringer was the best for last was saved is after lunch while everybody was like doing, I don't know, Division, whatever you do in third grade. Miss McGraw marched us super kids off of school property across the street. We walked across the street, folks. This is the mountains. There were no crosswalks. We had to make a mad dash for it. 
we went to an ice cream parlor. And we all got ice cream. And I think we, I, we got snow. We got, I don't know, we, we didn't need, it wasn't even a cup. It was like sugar cone style. And I think we got two scoops. Maybe I'm wrong. But I feel like I remember two scoops. And there's really not much better for a third grader, I don't think, than getting ice cream. Especially while your schoolmates are sitting in class doing division. And, and, and then to top it off, on the way back, there was a gas station right beside the school grounds. And Miss McGraw gave us all a dollar. And we got to go in the gas station and buy whatever we wanted to with the dollar. And, of course, we wanted to stretch that out. So we got, a, you know, an ample, you know, uh, treasure, pirate treasure to bring back. You know, put all the stuff, all the booty in our, in our pockets and save it for when we got back to class and dump it out on the table make a racket opening wrappers. You know, you, you know, your buddy's going, Psst, Matt, yo, is that great bubblicious? Man, give me a piece. And I'm like, I can't. You're not a super kid. That would be wrong. Teacher wouldn't let me. You're not as good as me. <laughs> so there is an example of my first reward that I went for. And it was an intense feeling of euphoria and obviously it's like 40 years later and I'm still remembering it it was legitimate but here's as it goes with most things that are rewards and goals when you achieve it then it loses its effect and what you may have thought was part of your life is not really part of your life i.e. little Maddie got four black marks the next week (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd had enough. I threw off restraint. I wasn't going to be hemmed in by your rules. Yeah, so no, I wasn't a super kid the next semester or next quarter. But the difference between that is that's a it the the power is fleeting. Like I couldn't I couldn't play Clue and watch Fraggle Rock and and get ice cream and candy. It would be good the next day, but it wouldn't like rewire my brain like it did that one time. It, the, the power is gone. I mean, obviously, after every week, every kid looks forward to Friday. But you're not going to remember every Friday the rest of your life. You're going to remember like Christmas and Super Kid. And that's what makes it special. But meaning is something that is sustainable, that can sustain you, and it can do it um, just perpetually. Because the reward is is related to something special. Either you work for it and you, you win, you beat other people, you're special, or you get a revelation and you realize you are special. But... When you get a revelation of being special, that doesn't, the, the power of that feeling doesn't last. You just remember it happening. And, and then effectively it can rewire your brain towards acting and behaving in a different manner. But again, with meaning, it can, it can just keep you going just on and on and on. And so this is, I, I need to make this point. Meaning is anything that you're, causing something that's greater than yourself 
to move towards something good or move away from something bad. That's what I think of as meaning. And your work can have meaning and your exercise can have meaning and your diet can have meaning and your social interactions can have meaning. Your community can have meaning, certainly. And it does. And when I say meta narrative, it doesn't have to mean the universal meaning of life. Like if that's difficult, man. If you try to if you try to attach the meaning of life to something that you do, then you're going to run into trouble fast. First of all, what's the meaning of life? If you went out like Family Feud style and asked a hundred people, "Hey, what's the meaning of life? What do you think the meaning of life is?" You're going to get a a ton of weird stuff. Maybe like you get 25 points for love, 15 for, I don't know, peace or unity. But most of the time people are going to say, well, I think, and then there's going to monologue about what they think is important. But even if it's love, then what does that mean? Like you sit around feeling affection for other people, peace, okay, well, or we're not hitting each other, knocking each other's teeth out. Does that mean that, oh, that we're all bringing our, the spoils of our week into a, a community and pouring it so it gets evenly dispersed to the people that have need. I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those. I'm just saying that, well, if I anybody could say, well, prove to me that's the meaning of life, you could not do it. And that, in essence, makes it difficult. But everybody has maybe their own idea of what's super valuable and super important. But here's an example of how it's difficult to try and take the greatest meaning of all, and then we're going to use that as our as our motivation for accomplishing a life change. Because I remember, I don't know if I was in college or just out, but some girl was talking about poetry and how she was got, and you realize she was gifted by God to write poetry and how she was. I don't know, honoring God with her poetry. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, I've read your stuff. <laughs> like, half of it's not even about God. Like, how are you honoring God? And, and it's not, that's like not the most, that's not the most valuable thing you can be doing. And, and, and then here's the reason is because I'm like, we need to get people saved. And it wasn't like I came from a hellfire and brimstone family actually just the opposite my mom kind of grew up in it and was very dysfunctional and she tried to spare my sister and I from having a, a really warped idea of the of the father God and my dad I think you know he grew up a, a mealy Methodist <laughs> like do they even believe in hell <laughs> but but what I had heard stories of people that died and they went to heaven and God they saw Jesus and Jesus was like hey man it's not your time yet you got to go back and they're like, whoa, what'd you see in heaven? Oh, I saw angels. They were big and beautiful and they had wings. They were streets of gold. They were literally streets of gold. I saw a sea and it was like crystal. It was like glass. You know, there were music in the air. There were flowers everywhere. <laughs> the smells were great. The, the music had circular, infinite harmonies. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's so cool, man. I don't even get it, but that's cool. And then you're like, you hear stories, somebody died with the hell and God reaches down and pulls them out of the suffering and says, Hey, you know, it's not your time yet. You need to get your life right. 
They show up on the gurney. You know, they wake up on the gurney. And you're like, hell. Well, so what was hell like? And they're like, uh, well, you know, I was swimming in a cauldron of liquid hot boiling magma. <laughs> and my whole flesh was on fire the whole time. It's like, yeah, my eyes would burn out of the sockets and then regrow and just burn again. <laughs> it's not funny. I mean, yeah, apparently it is. But it's funny because I'm trying to get across my point of why I was indignant with this girl talking about poetry. Like, when people talk about heaven, it, it sounds like Epcot, you know, or uh, I'm hiking Cinque Terre or New Zealand or something cool. That's really awesome, man. I just had a pastry and next to the Eiffel Tower. That's an experience. But I've been burned before. And I wouldn't trade any experience for being burned again. And then my whole flesh, and it's like eternity. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, like, there's no contrast. Like, zero is absolute worst, and 100 is absolute good. Well, let's say if hell's 0.1 and heaven's 0.99.9, well, my experience now ain't 50. My experience is 99. And I'm not saying that's the difference between God and the devil. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying when people talk about heaven and they talk about hell, I can relate with the pain of hell. And I can't I even imagine, um, I mean, I can imagine something being good. But I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to trade somebody, you know, kicking my kneecap so I can go to a steak restaurant. Pain is much more palatable. And so I'm thinking the meaning of life is to get people saved, to keep them out of hell. And if I try to if I try to attach that to something else that I want to accomplish, I'm going to run into trouble fast. If I felt like there were people that they're slaves, you know, child, you know, human trafficking, or maybe there are starving people in famine, the mortality rate of the children is really high. How do I give my life so to ease their suffering? That would be one. I mean, that's that's intense, man. That's a deep, all-encompassing narrative. And for me to say that I've got to attach my goal to that, then I, I'm I'm gonna it's gonna be disingenuous really, really fast. I'm gonna be lying to myself really, really fast. And and I, of all things that you shouldn't do, is lie to yourself. Honestly. I'm just under suicide and um, sadism and uh, drug addiction would be lie to yourself. It's just, if you want to ruin your life, you just start lying to yourself. And you basically become worthless. But anyway, I'm getting off track here. All you need is the meaning to be palatable to you, meaning that it's part of, it's you identify with it. So, okay, let me give you an example. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Steve Miller Band had a hit back in, well, I don't know if it was a hit, but it was on their best hits, you know, album that I had. It's called Dance, Dance, Dance. And then obviously, you know, if you're over 45 or 50, you probably know who Steve Miller Band is. They had a lot of hits back in the late 70s, early 80s. What was the one? Oh, the Joker. I was not allowed to sing that because he claimed to be um, a smoker, a uh, a toker, and a sinner. <laughs> All in the same sentence, so I couldn't sing that one. But they had another song called Dance, Dance, Dance. And 
the start of the song, well, the song's just about him going out with his, I think his wife, maybe his girlfriend and dancing and, you know, having fun. This isn't like, you know, club dancing. This is like a hoedown or a, a bluegrass, you know, everybody's dancing around with fiddles. But he starts the song out with, I'm a hardworking man. I'm a son of a gun. I've been working all week in this noonday sun. The wood's in the kitchen, the cow's in the barn. I'm all cleaned up and my chores are all done. And then he goes on about, you know, going out dancing with his girl and her pretty dress and all that. He started with, I'm a hardworking man. That's meaning. I was a wrestler, right? I've already made that known. And wrestling is uh, classically kind of a blue collar type of activity. And so if you watch like the, the national tournament and the commentators are talking about the next two wrestlers that are, you know, they're the finals, it's uh, the 149-pound weight class. And then they start to talk about the individual wrestlers and they say where they're from and what they've done in their life and their families. And it's like almost, it's like almost a caricature in my mind that when they talk about the mom that she's the biggest fan and they talk about the dad, he's a hardworking man. Now, you would not probably hear that if you were, you know, watching the, the about the national soccer team or tennis. Because kids that play tennis or soccer are probably coming from different type of families that are wrestlers. If you're blue collar, then you work with your hands. It's labor intensive. And you're probably not making that much money. And you probably have more kids than statistically the white collar families. So when you say I'm a hardworking man, you're talking about not just something that's special. No, it's not that. It's your identity, but it's also a requirement. If I'm a farmer, right, and I'm not a hardworking man, then I'm not a farmer very long. If I'm a coal miner and I'm not a hardworking man, then um, you better hope that you don't have a family because your kids are going hungry and, and your wife's ashamed of you and people are embarrassed for them. So I'm the, the, the issue is, is that the meaning of being a hardworking man doesn't come from being special. You're not special. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And in that sense... Coming from that, uh, the, the a laborer, you you um, as a man, it, it's not becoming to brag on yourself, but you can say I'm a hardworking man, and you're and you bragging on yourself, but you're not really bragging on yourself because it's it's expected, and you can leech meaning out of every day of your life work. I mean, tell me what farmer likes to get up and. You know, oh, it's it's summer. It's time to make hay. I, I'm putting in 15-hour days every day, seven days a week. Well, I guarantee you if there was no meaning within that, 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 that person wouldn't be a farmer. But he comes back exhausted, you know, eats his dinner, kisses his wife, and falls asleep immediately. And he waits for the rooster to crow and get up and do it all over again. But he keeps doing it, and he feels a deep sense of satisfaction about the fact that he's just out there doing it. 
Like he doesn't even have to produce the best crops. He just got to work hard. That's meaning. Okay, so I started watching this movie called Geronimo. And Geronimo, if you know anything about the history of the American West, this was in the late 19th century. And basically all, by this point, this was like the 1880s, all the Native American tribes, or I don't can you say Native American anymore? American Indian tribes had been moved to reservations. So you didn't have like, you know, roaming, you know, you, like you were <laughs> trying to go across in a wagon and you would get attacked by Indians. This was past that. But there was just one Apache group that were hiding out in the mountains and they were, the, their their leader was Geronimo and they just, the, the army couldn't catch him. He was, he was wild. He was a wild man. And finally, they, uh, I think the, the people started to starve. And so he said, we got to get, we got to turn ourselves in. So they went and they turned themselves in. And this is the start of this movie. And the, the, the army's there and they're like, where's Geronimo? And they said, well, he's not here. And they're like, well, where is he? And he said, well, the treaty says we just have to be here by sundown. And he's like, well, why isn't he here? And he's like, he's, he's um, fulfilling a promise. And then the, the scene pans over and you see Geronimo and he's riding bareback on the horse. And there's this kid that's holding on to his waist behind him. And they're chasing this small herd of uh, wild Mustangs. And he lassos this beautiful white Mustang and they, you know, rein it up and he jumps off and he like, he like totally, I don't know what you call this. He pancakes the horse. It's like if you've ever watched a rodeo and they, they lasso a little, one of those little calves or the, the, the younger um, bulls and they grab them and they twist their head around and pancake them to the ground and then tie their feet, whatever that's called. He did this to the horse. I guess this was before, you know, animal rights, you know, animals had any rights, but he, he basically pancaked this horse down and then put a a um, a bridle on it and then broke it and then he did all that right you know the man men of man man of men and he says to the kid um, this is your horse you know what this means and the boy looks at him and he goes that means you're a man now you must behave like a man you must and he starts giving him all these instructions about a manhood he says you are Apache you are a man. You will do this, you will do that, you will do this, you will do that. And he's just basically breaking out his responsibilities. So there's this honor, and then there was this responsibility, and they went together. Authority that went together with this responsibility, which gave the identity of the Apache man. And this 11-year-old was like, there was nothing about his responsibility that he shirked or was dreading. All the suffering and pain and risk that he would have to do as a man of the Apache. He was totally looking forward to it because this had meaning to him. And so it goes back, and they're at this um, new camp that they're supposed to stay at. And the, the captain in the army says, okay, take their horses. And Geronimo's like, whoa, 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 those are our horses. You can't take them. And, and the guy's like, um, you stole them from farmers. And Geronimo's like, um, well, how will we live? How will we survive? How will we eat? And he goes... You won't need to hunt. The American government will provide everything for you. You will have no more need of horses. Well, that was... Okay, understand that that's not acceptable to Geronimo because part of his identity was, I'm a wild, powerful man with a horse. 
and the horse is is like an extension of the Apache. You can't take away our horses. And ultimately, what you've seen on a lot of Indian reservations is that they have the highest and the worst, I guess you would say, statistics for drug addiction, alcoholism, uh, metabolic diseases, um, domestic violence. Now, this isn't anything about Native Americans or American Indians. This is about reservations. And if you have something where your freedom is restricted, but you don't have to go out and work, then the men fall apart. Okay? If you took away the maternal responsibility of a woman, then the women fall apart. This is meaning, and you can extract it. It does not go away. As long as you have the opportunity to pull meaning from it, then you can. it, it makes you come alive. And if you no longer have that meaning attached to it, you're on, the, on some reservation, then you start to die, and you start to give up. All right, guys, this has been about 35 minutes so far, so I'm going to go ahead and save the rest for Thursday. This has been part one of Meaning, and Thursday will be part two. This has been Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams. I'll catch you on the next one. Oh, 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 oh,